Welcome back to another edition of the Work and Play Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel Young, and I have a special guest here today, Mr. Paul Adamson. What's up? What's going on? Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to have this conversation. I think it's going to tie in so many parts of what the essence of the the podcast is. And so, um, without further ado, would you like to introduce yourself to the people? Sure. My name is Paul Adamson, as you mentioned. I currently work off Amazon as a site controller. And one of our sites here in Macon, Georgia, uh, met Ari through a chance encounter, and we actually found out we were colleagues at Delta, uh, and then just uh, interacting with her and her passion for the community led us to a volunteer experience together, and I've uh, been friends ever since. So really happy to get into the conversation with you today, and I'm glad to see you know that I'm here on the platform. Absolutely, it's, it's important that I had you on this platform because you're uh, you are a part of the full integration of me being able to like realize what the zone felt like for me. And I mean, I don't know if you knew this; it was kind of an internal process for me because when I was doing the um, when it, like when we were holding workshops, and I had a moment to just kind of talk, and then I would have young people say, "Oh, Miss Ari, you said this," and I'm like, "I said that." Those moments, I never was as tailored as I usually am. You know what I mean? I'm kind of scripted a lot of times. It depends on what I'm preparing for. But because those moments really helped make me who I am, and then there were times when I was having a bad day. I don't think you knew that, but I would see you in the cab or the woman, right? And you, we would sit down. I think there was like maybe one or two impromptu chances where we saw each other in the, in the cab, and we sat down, and you just kind of told me your experience and how you were trying to navigate in your career. So when I, I say all that to say, as the podcast came into being, like work and play, those were just one of those times where work just didn't even feel like work. It just felt like play. So um, I'm curious to get into your background, of course, and um, hear a little bit about how impact shows up, because I think that's what we have in common. So would you mind sharing a little bit about like, you know, where you come from, how you grew up? Yeah, so uh, I'm originally from Boston, if you can't tell by the accent. So I uh, grew up in the Northeast, came down to my alma mater, Morehouse, uh, majored in business, and I had a dream. I wanted to work on Wall Street. I wanted to work on Wall Street. So when you don't come from a lot of means, but you come from a lot of love, that's kind of what you aspire to be. So I went there, I worked on Wall Street in investment banking for uh, two years for a Canadian bank. Uh, which was building out its uh, North American footprint in the, in the U.S. Okay. Uh, and then after that, kind of had <laughs> uh, the, my first experience with kind of the pitfalls of corporate America. I actually ended up getting fired. What What happened? You gotta let us know. <laughs> so I, I was still rough around the edges. I had some of the soft skills, but not a lot of it. It's uh, and if anybody knows about investment banking, it's a very very uh, difficult job. High reward, high kind of demand, um, but it's a lot of hours. Sometimes hundred hour weeks. You know, almost move to your desk. You're lucky if you leave work the same day you came in. Uh, and then it's a highly pressurized situation where a lot of the communication isn't as pleasant as you would like it to be. To put it in, in polite terms. Yeah. Uh, so it just came to a point where I didn't know how to handle that level of frustration being expressed to me. And I reacted in a way that I typically would react in my, from coming from my environment. So being more emotional in my reaction, I kind of just told him, you know, kiss my Like, so up, ways. Yeah, in so many ways. Uh, so getting to a point where I had uh, this course with my manager in a way that I wouldn't say would be the most professional man. Uh, I kind of handled it in a way that 
we would handle things back in the neighborhood that I grew up in. So I didn't know how to separate and communicate anger appropriately in the workplace or frustration appropriately in the workplace. And it led to me ultimately being, you know, um, it was like a mutual termination. Hey, we know this isn't kind of working out for you. You, you really have a great uh, work ethic, you have great technical skills, but you're missing your soft skills and elements and it's probably best if you kind of do something else. So from there, uh, I went to kind of interview at different places. And, but that, so there's like a mark that gets put on your record sometimes if you're hired or not rehired. So when I was going to third rounds or fourth rounds, final stages of interviews, and I was like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I was trying to figure out like, why? So I just finally just asked one of the people who I interviewed with the recruiter, who was like, pretty much like, you got the job, like, all you have to do is, you know, we're just waiting on this approval. And then she came back and told me the reason why I reached out to my whole job and found out that they had listed me as unhirable. So that's why they have a well, reason for concern in hiring me. So that kind of stuck with me for six months. Um, but it was probably the best lesson that I could learn. So it taught me no matter how much you fail in a small instance, you have to always handle things tactfully. You can't react emotionally. Uh, and being as such, I just said, look, I corporate world wasn't working out for me. I took a break. I, I was always very kind of judicial with my savings. So I was able to, to take time to do what I wanted. And ultimately, I just said, I just want to do something that I can just get out the house and not have to think about it. So I took a job as a baggage handler in Boston. Okay. Uh, so for those who don't it's coming together, no, I'm listening. Those who don't know. Those who don't know about what a baggage handling is, is I literally is a guy, when you put your suitcase on the belt, I take it off the belt, I put it on the plane, hop in the back of, you know, the aircraft, climb up 20, 30 feet, and stack suitcases uh, in the belly of the airplane. So that was probably the most fun experience I had, and it really reinvigorated me to want to pursue a corporate career. Uh, so that experience allowed me to see, like, the essence of where I came from, hardworking people who, you know, your job is same, fast paced. You have deliverables. If you miss something, like you're literally messing up somebody's vacation, you're messing up somebody's reunion or like somebody transitioning, you know, from this earth and that people trying to go there to, to send them off appropriately. Um, so that allowed me to, especially with the fact of how you can travel and transition with the benefits from that job, mm-hmm. allow me to kind of see things from a different perspective and made me realize what I was chasing by trying to go after this high value kind of prestigious occupation. Yeah. It's really what I found in doing kind of the minimum wage job yeah. at the airport. Yeah, it's the impact. And it's really about how you how you connect to other people's journeys and how important you play, even if you're doing the smallest things. And if you do the smallest things with joy, you can do big things. That's real. And in hindsight, we can clearly see, like, sometimes when you're sitting at a desk, you, some people leave, they quit because they don't feel like they have that, that um, impact. And some people just sit in their job unhappy because they don't have that impact. And in hindsight, we can see that you going into this baggage handling position gave you that impact. But I can imagine the, the pride, at least swallowing your pride, at least at the point where you realize you were getting blacklisted for the first experience. And then going from this prestigious investment banker type role to baggage handler, what was that transition like in terms of how did you first feel? And then when did you start to feel like a man again? I always felt like a man the whole time. Mm-hmm. Or the man. The um, man, okay. So, but what it was was, okay, 
this doesn't work out, what can you do that's going to make you happy? Okay, that's ultimately what I was chasing. So the, the money aspect, of course, was something that I had to get readjusted to. But for the mentality that I had, it was like, I was broke before my whole life. I grew up around mm-hmm. people who had, you know, living off of government assistance or different things or just living paycheck to paycheck or really like somebody uh, I follow on Instagram says paycheck to Friday. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so really, uh, I didn't really have a problem with Justin, but it was tuning out what everybody else would say about it. So you go from making six figures mm-hmm. to making $12 an hour. Mm-hmm. It's a big, <laughs> it's a big ego hit if you allow it to be. But the whole thing is um, also just relying from my environment is you have the resiliency, you have the versatility to, to take different paths. And if you can hustle and get up to that, that's one thing that you know you can always bounce back. So even when I felt like, well, people were perceiving me to be at my lowest, mm-hmm. I always knew I could bounce back to that at any point. And here's going to be my plan. Here's going to be my strategy. Yeah. So once I had enough fun of like, hey, I just want to drop equipment and do this and that, I started really employing the technical skills that I had. And that's what allowed me to transition from the baggage handler role by building out programs to help people swap their ships and make their lives easier. Mm-hmm. They took that and uh, allowed me to use that as a, a, a jumping point to uh, go down to Atlanta for the corporate office and, and get into a, a more corporate role from there. No, okay. So tell me more about that part. You And I'm really, I love the fact that you took a chance on yourself. It wasn't quite a passion move to become a baggage handler, but like you said, once the fun was over, you were like, okay, now how can I get serious and then start to put my skills into place? So when did you, what was your first vantage point that you saw in, in like um, executing that plan? And then a little bit about how you transitioned into Atlanta. Of course. So I always look at it as you look for a problem and you try to find a solution. So the problem there was they have like two different type of uh, working classes there. So you have your temporary employees and then like your full-time employees. Uh, but everybody has the same joint problem. So everybody wants to have flexibility in their schedules so they can travel. Uh, so what happened at that time was you weren't allowed to swap shifts between certain classes because of the way that the shifts were structured. Uh, so me just being able to put together a little program where people could see exactly who they'd be able to swap with and uh, allow people to have that communication channel and then also get a management buy-in on that and just show them, hey, this is how you can better staff your, your operation cut down on attendance misses and cut down on nutrition because people can't figure out the flexibility that they need their schedules. This can help you. So I was able to tie in all of those different things and we started to see the improvement as a site. And that's when they kind of were like, hey, what are you doing here? I was almost pushed out. And that's kind of like a common theme like later in my career. Like once I got to the level where I was, I learned the lessons that I needed to learn from those places, mm-hmm. I got pushed out to something greater and better. Mm, because you grew, you grew out of it. People were like, uh, you're too big for this role. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how did you find the advantage, the vantage point where, how did you find the right ear? So a lot of times we could be in a role where we don't necessarily have um, autonomy or leadership or like decision-making skills or uh, power. And you identified a problem, you determined the solution. Then how did you find the person who would ultimately listen to you to start to put your solutions in place. Got it. So good help will always find an audience. So if you're being helpful and you're just going out your way, 
to do things for people where it's not becoming a hindrance or you're doing it for like some type of ulterior motive and you're genuine about it, those people will speak for you and it will get to the right ears eventually. Everything is about time. So if you're doing good things at the right place at the right time, it'll happen for you. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it takes, you know, longer, but eventually it will find you as long as you continue to do the good work. Yeah. You're saying organically continue to, to serve and yeah. provide solutions. And eventually you'll have so many ears who have heard you and then so many people who have experienced your solutions being able to be your, your mouthpiece instead of you actually doing it. Of course. I think that's really strategic. Um, even though you might not have seen it that way um, initially, I'm sure you did a little bit though. But I know that, so one thing that we have in common that the folks don't know is, I guess, to give a little bit of color. We volunteered, we both are volunteered in the career readiness program. And um, when, I, when, I, when I established the program, I knew what it could be, but it was people like you who brought it to life. And what I mean by that is, all I knew when I met you was that you went from, actually, I knew a little bit about when you went from baggage handling to um, a corporate position in accounting, but we met um, in Lyft, and we'll talk about that, of, of course. Uh, we met when you were doing um, your side hustle. But when we were teaching the young people at Covenant House that it is possible to go from the ramp to corporate position, it's all—it's almost like um, seeming impossible, right? And as much as you were strategic, the things that you did were just organic that anybody could actually do. Being helpful, solving problems, and allowing people to organically tell what you've done for them is what anyone can do if you feel like you don't have authority in your role, but you know that you have a solution to the problem, it's not to say, let me go set up, set up a meeting with the manager of the boss's boss's boss. It's just to do your job where you are. So like, I just think that's really amazing. Of course, and I appreciate that. I think it all boils down to leading by influence. So if you don't have authority, you do have control over the people around you. So if it's one of your coworkers that you know is struggling and you have a process that works better or you know how to do different things more efficiently, if you show them, then eventually they might show somebody else and they're like, oh, where did you learn that from? Or Paul talked about it. Or Ari talked about it. And that's how those, that, that's another way to get up there, especially for people who are shy and don't want to network too much or work the crowd too much. You just talk about the people who are around you. Mm-hmm. And if you change the things around you, everything else around you will change as well. Bingo. That's, that's really where it is. Being able to manipulate your environment, just, you know, small piece by piece. So you outgrew that role, you went up and out, and at this point, you've been at the company for how long? Oh, um, it was only five months. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you, you got tired, I guess, like three or four months in, and you said, let's start to... <laughs> it, was, it was cool, but, you know, lifestyle, <laughs> once to creep back up, you kind of get used to making a certain, you know, level of income, savings start to not kind of supplement that as much, and mm-hmm. it was just like, okay, it's time. And then the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. And I had to be ready and be ready quick. So I interviewed on a Friday, got the job offer on a Monday, flew down to Atlanta with two suitcases that next Monday. All right. So what was your first job in Atlanta? Uh, so I was working for uh, Delta Global Services, which was a subsidiary of Atlanta as a financial analyst there. So it was a pretty, pretty cool, unique experience where, you know, got to manage uh, more of uh, the 
overall business side than just being like one of the number in Delta's uh, main corporate kind of uh, structure. Mm-hmm. So I had the ability to work directly with the, the CFO of the company, get directly to work with the director of finance, like literally go over to his cube and we have lunch every Thursday. So I got to learn that business side of how to really uh, work with different people and we kind of establish the patience that I learned, you know, from not instilling that in, in my old kind of position when I was in investment banking. But from the last piece that I brought from working on rent, still remember that it's a people situation. No job is too big or too small for anyone. Mm-hmm. And just remember to continue to have fun while you're working. So I brought that piece there and it was able to kind of grow in that role, advocate for different people, have the flexibility to, of course, tear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I uh, was able to not only get myself promoted, but a couple of my colleagues promoted too. So making sure that I lift as I climb at that at that position and got to the point where I was kind of at the cap where I could grow there. I um, moved up to uh, senior level two of financial analyst and they had to like, create that position for me. But, wow. uh, yeah, it was it was a really great experience. Got to travel a lot, of course, experience all the flight benefits there Absolutely. and I uh, made some cool friends in the process. Like what? Um, I want to talk a little bit about that you just kind of grazed over it, but we're not going to not talk about the fact that you said you pulled up a couple people in the process. Mm-hmm. So are you like, what is that? What does that actually mean? Like, how are, how are you able to um, see who would be a good you know person to bring up with you? And then what did you actually do to get that, that ball rolling and get some people either well, from bag of handling to where you were or like just moving up? Within my, within my corporate structure, so it's close to the point I made earlier. You lead by influence of the people that are around you. So all of us started at the same time. Mm-hmm. At that time, uh, the department just experienced 100% turnover. So all of the analysts left either for uh, transition into other departments, retirement, because, you know, Delta has like a very senior kind of uh, working kind of group. So mm-hmm. a lot of those people came up on their 20 years. So they were looking around like, wow, like, we don't have any people to fulfill this role. So... Me having that experience of actually servicing the company from an operational experience, like as a baggage handler, I was able to bring more of that kind of practical knowledge to the world and then having the technical expertise from having to do way more complex things on an investment banking side, uh, I could have did that job in my sleep. So instead of just making sure that I can automate all my processes and I can kind of do my job in like 10 hours, I'm like, okay, what do I do with the rest of these 30 hours? Do I just play around, but mm-hmm. just kind of be that guy who's just very quiet, reserved, so nobody asking me any questions, but my job is completely done, or do I try to impact other people's lives and give them the same opportunities that people present to me to get there? So all of my cube mates, I just were like, hey, this is how you do this, or if there's a problem, hey, this is actually how you, you do this class, or I started teaching like Excel classes for like the models that we were doing, or showing them how to use the technical applications for the different things that they were in. In terms of our, our work scope, some people didn't catch it, but the ones who did, I was like, okay. And then there was a guy who actually was the cube right over for me. Uh, his name is Matt. It's also a guy from Boston, so it was like a little bit <laughs> of a cheat code there. Um, but made sure to, to say, hey, you follow me, you do these steps. This is how we're going to get promoted. This is how we're going to get additional funds and, and get compensated for the work that we're going to do here. And you know, partly selfishly is like, hey, I need this so that I know how to develop people so that way I can get to a managerial role. So I'll help you, 
get the skills that you need. You help me showcase that I have the ability to work well with others and manage people and, and develop skill sets to other persons. And then we can both win. Win, win. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm loving your story. And I'm, I'm like, I can get so ingrained in like every single detail. But from where we are, from where we started, you had the first challenge in investment banking of like that personal development, understanding how to control your anger and how to manage your, your emotions in um, the workforce, especially when you have people coming at you kind of incorrect. Because it's one thing to learn how to pace yourself and manage your anger in an environment where people are being PC, but you kind of got thrown to like the, the fire with your um your tendency to, to kind of react versus um, respond and then an environment that's kind of like much more triggering than others. So now that you have a chance to really show your, your leadership skills, develop others, you've created a whole new brand from the baggage handling position all the way to corporate. What did you start to learn about yourself in this role? I learned that now the second piece is patience with a lot of progress if, if you want to develop faster. So Again, I transitioned from baggage handling to that corporate role in less than five months. I was able to get promoted in less than a year. Wanted the next promotion in next less than a year as well. So now I'm here two years looking around like, okay, it's almost time for the next step. But they didn't have the, the speed at which I was growing personally and the work that I was getting assigned and the responsibilities weren't matching. So those trajectories weren't moving at the same speed. Uh, and I had to learn patience. If anything else I learned from working it, it was that. So uh, not everything works at the speed of what you want it to. And even though you may feel as though you're ready, you have to have the buy-in from, from the people who actually make the decisions. So also learn how to identify the people who make the key decisions and what things you need to do in order to make sure that they make a decision that's favorable for you. That's, that's, that's important. It's that people piece, that relationships piece, identifying the person who are the people who will help you get to where you want to go. And also, because I ultimately know that you left and you went on to greener pastures, mm-hmm. what was that decision-making process? Because you were patient up until a point where you decided something was better for you. So when did patience or, or yeah, patience turn into action in a different direction? I was kind of just forced out in that situation, so there was no more room to grow. And after you feel kind of caged in, you imagine bumping your head on the ceiling and the ceiling, you're going to get frustrated. Mm-hmm. So those frustrations started to make the job not fun. It literally did not become fun anymore. Yeah. But because I did so much good work and I was able to help other departments, I had a friend who worked in our network planning outside of the business said, hey, uh, I have a friend uh, who was hiring at United, who was a competitor at the time. Uh, but she just lost all her staff, similar to the situation that you came in here. And they only have like a junior analyst role. I know you're like our senior, our top senior analyst there, but I could talk to her to see if she can create a senior analyst role because it would be a perfect solution for her. Uh, so that conversation occurred. Uh, it's actually was like right across the lot <laughs> from airline to airline. Oh. So I didn't have to go far. So I, I increased, increased my work commute by like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but I was able to transition smoothly to that opportunity. And, uh, you know, in my current role before I transitioned to United, I gave them the courtesy. Hey, I can leave on this day, but I can push that back and give you guys a month. And I left in this, in this space. Like, hey, I'm going to link, put out all the details. I'm going to put everything in a full presentation format so that way somebody can transition and make up. 
your transition better because I also learned from my very first experience, you never want to leave with a bad taste because you never know how that can affect your next opportunity. And sometimes you may want to go back. So I wanted to leave in a good space where he weren't feeling as though, hey, he was frustrated here, he couldn't grow anymore, and he just ditched us and left us high and dry. But hey, he realized that he couldn't get the opportunities that he wanted to seek here at this point. He left us in a good space. If there was ever a reunion point, I could see myself working with that type of person again. Mm. Uh, so that, that was another piece that I was able to add in, and I made that transition smooth. Mm. Never burn a bridge. Never. Mm. That's, so one thing is God giving you the opportunity to learn from what you've already learned from and then leave a whole different situation years later in a better a better off than um, than you were able to in your last role. So how did you like it at United? I liked it. I liked it. So I pretty much got to be almost like a semi-controller. Um, so uh, we very lean corporate structure. Uh, so a lot of responsibility, a lot of exposure. I met directly with like the, the C-suite of the company every week. And eventually, because I was volunteering my services and my skills got in a position where I ran the total staffing model for the entire company. And I'm in pilot negotiations with, wow. <laughs> with, uh, with the union. And we're going back and forth trying to reorganize their contract and different negotiation tactics. So I got to learn business from that, that, uh, that experience. And I also got to learn that I have power in a room, especially from being from my background, uh, being in a room with those type of persons where you don't necessarily have a voice, going from just being a fly on the wall to being the commanding voice that, hey, this is what we need to do. This is how we're going to do it. And then people challenge that viewpoint and I'm able to rebut them in a, in a manner where they respect my rebuttal and they actually take action on the things that I said. So I got to, I got to learn how to manage up and manage the process while like not having a direct report per se in that in that room, but then going back to my team and then being like a de facto leader of my team. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like what, what I love about your story is what I love about what I would, what I would say when I was in the airline is if you start from the bottom and you work your way up, you have all of the knowledge from the front, from the front facing, well, to from the back facing to the customer facing, all the way up to like the, the business side of things. And so the power that you're speaking about is like that expert power. Nobody can take it from you. It is not about merit power. It's not about like um, the HIPAA, you know, highest paid person in the room. It's because you literally carry yourself with, of course, poise and pride because you are a warehouse man. <laughs> but you also have that expertise that um, nobody can really tap into if they've never been in your shoes, right? Mm -hmm. Unless they had the same exact journey. There are very few people who've been able to make those transitions over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's, I'm glad you said that because I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much expertise that they have. So if you're coming from a situation where they're a single mom, like you're more of a business owner than you think because you're already running things and managing time and having to manage your personal side with another human being who's accountable you're responsible for and still having to do your work and responsibilities. Yeah. Or coming from, you know, not the best of backgrounds. For you to make it through that and do, you know, to get to where you are, like, you have so much more expertise than somebody else that who can't probably handle those type of very difficult kind of working environments. Absolutely. And you know how to be resilient and not break. You might bend, but you're not going to break. And I think a lot of people, if they really realize how much power they had and stop looking at these things as impossible, 
uh, they'd be able to actually accomplish way more. Absolutely. I think that that makes that's a great segue into how we got connected because we essentially, I mean, we, we got connected. I think there's a there's a story there, but we got connected because we were trying to help people understand it doesn't matter how many years you've been on this earth. It doesn't matter what your background is. You have information in this mind and we just want to help you communicate that. So, and I'm still talking about the Delta Career Readiness Program because so many times the story was, well, you know what? I, I, won't, I'm, I, don't have, I never had a job. I never had a real job. I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember having a conversation with a young man about his resume and he worked actually with his dad and his uncle as a drug dealer. You know, he's kind of raised in that game. And so it's just interesting to have a conversation about how he built his soft skills and some of those like those technical skills around measurements and things like that, right? And <laughs> but after we got through his resume, he's like, "Oh my god, I didn't know how to, I didn't know I knew how to do all this stuff." Mm-hmm. So connecting the story that you're saying, your expert power with um, this this impact that we've been able to to place. I'm just curious how your volunteer spirit, you've always had the spirit of being a servant. I can hear it. But can you tell me how that has evolved in your life, even before I met you? It did. So, I mean, it's kind of been ingrained in me since a child. So, just to take it a step further, my mom was a foster mom. So, we had family members who kind of didn't make the most appropriate life choices, and we had to uh, take in some of our, our cousins. So, just seeing from that, like how my mom could take in other people that not really necessarily her family, so from my dad's side of the family, and, and show that love. And I'm a mama's boy, so I was the youngest, so I'm like, oh, what's going on? So I had to learn early how to give and share. My parents were really big into church and community service, so my dad would be in the choir, and we'd go on Saturday and, you know, be in the choir and do volunteer projects. So we had this uh, operation called uh, Project Hope, which would volunteer and raise money in Canvas. Got it. So, like, it kind of was instilled in me when I was young. So, I uh, had a couple family members who didn't make the best life decisions. Uh, and their kids were uh, uh, being placed in a situation where they have to enter foster care. So, my mom stepped up and became a foster mom. And it was for, like, family that wasn't technically, like, really her family. It's like, oh, my dad's uh, uh but more so on my stepsister's side. So, it was even more disconnected. But just seeing how she was able to embrace them and different things, and me having to learn as the baby of the family at that time, having two now younger foster siblings, like, learning how to share and how to how to give of myself, and then my parents also were very ingrained in church, so my dad was in the choir, and we had to go on Saturdays and do, you know, rehearsals and projects, and uh, they would sing at this place called uh, Christmas in the City, which is a big event that they do in Boston, and they put it on where they uh, present Christmas gifts, and they do a Christmas concert for all of the kids who were in the shelters uh, or in uh, foster care. Uh, so that's kind of something I've always been involved with. So a lot of my friends at the time, as I grew up, were in foster care because my mom befriended a lot of different foster moms. So we're always volunteering, always kind of extending our home to be with different people uh, to help them, you know, come through the situations that they were going through or just being involved in church in general. Uh, and I always just tried to instill that. So every single place that I was at, while even investment banking, I try to do some type of charitable work and give back of my means while I was there. Yeah, and Morehouse is a, is a great place to do that because I hear a lot about what they do in the community. Of course. like Actually, as part of every business major, we have the, this course, uh, Dr. Belinda White, uh, shout out to her, <laughs> um, leadership professional development. 
And as part of that course, you have to uh, volunteer at a local elementary school or high school, and you have to put on a program uh, for about six to eight weeks and, and help uh, teach them different skills uh, in terms of professional development. So I uh, was at a, a high school that actually is closed now, but it was the alternative high school. It's called Krim. Okay. I've uh, heard of that. Did. Uh, hopefully for, for good reasons. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the alternative high school, and uh, some people would say that's where the bad kids go, but I like to say that's where the kids who have more of a unique circumstances go to. Uh, so we were there, and a lot of these kids are, are dealing with real-life problems at an age that most people probably wouldn't like to be exposed to. Uh, so that was another thing that really helped me kind of get prepared for the Delta Career Readiness Program. Yeah. So. Those kids I was working with in that high school setting, trying to help them get through, trying to get their GEDs, probably would have been the same group of kids who ended up uh, at the Covenant House. Absolutely. I just had to take a breath because I, I didn't know. I don't think I've never had a chance to talk to you about your experience creating a whole development program for young people experiencing. You know, they're at the beginning of the pipeline before mm-hmm. I even got a chance to meet the young people. And um, that's another story for another day because it's not about me, it's about you. But when we met, we officially met when I was in a lift. I have no clue where I was going. And you were teaching me essentially some financial um, tidbits because, and I remember thinking, I'm a finance major. So I remember thinking like, this man knows so much more about finance. And I never tapped into that. But you have always had this, also this, this financial spirit, but then the uh, spirit of serving. So as soon as I told you about the program, you just kind of took to it. But where were you in your life at that point when I met you? Because I had no clue all this stuff was going on. So pretty much I was at the point where I'm like, okay, I want to take advantage of the systems and show people that this is how you use that. So at that time, I was trying to get my family more inclined to the business side of things. And a lot of the systems that are put in place put you in a, in a position where you're more complacent. Like, a lot of people get this now when they're looking at the pandemic and people are like, I make way more money on unemployment sent at the house than I would go to risk my life in the middle of a pandemic to work at a Walmart or any of these other customer-facing uh, uh, service jobs. Mm-hmm. But at that time, people didn't understand that. So I'm like, hey, like, you literally can do this and go and do a couple of small moves and be able to own a house, be able to, you know, start building some equity. Uh, so I just said, you know what, I'm going to stop telling you and I'm just going to show you. I'm going to start from square one. I'm not going to use any of these other different advantages. I'm going to walk you through this step by step mm-hmm. and I'm going to put up all the information. So what I was looking at it was the housing um, piece. So I was like, I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to do it the cheapest way possible and I'm going to show you how. So I looked up. Uh, all of the different programs that they have for first-time homebuyers. So I said, okay, if you keep a certain level of income and you're below this threshold, you'll get uh, access to the special pricing that you can get, mm-hmm. uh, and you'll also get down payment assistance. And if you only contribute a minimum amount, I think it's $1,000 minimum okay. uh, throughout the entire process. That's just earnest money, that's inspections, that's whatever you have to contribute for your down payment you'll be able to get into a house. They also have programs that allowed you, at the time, of course, the Section 8 voucher program is a lot different now. You could apply your voucher within certain counties to the purchase of a home, and they would still allow that voucher to be purchased, to be applied 
as a credit to your mortgage every month. I did not know Literally. that. So that's what I was doing in that lift. I was like, so I can only cap my earnings at a certain point. So because you can follow your taxes quarterly uh, as an entrepreneur, which lift allows you to become, I was able to maintain my cash flow while artificially depressing it by me having not as much, you know, show up from my corporate job. So I was able to boost my uh, deposits into my 401k, so my adjusted gross income with deflate. And then I was able to supplement the amount that I was putting away to deferred kind of retirement plans via the lift. So the lift was just to maintain the cash flow. But I also said, if I'm going to do this, if there's any spirits that I come across that I feel can use the knowledge, I'm going to disseminate it. So that's what I begin to do. And then also, same way leading by influence, I just put these things up in my queue. So anyone who is at you know, DGS and 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 uh, the building there can tell you and can attest to that. Yeah, I'll go to Paul's cube and he will be handing me a packet of information and just say, "Here's how you do it." Um, so that's what I was just doing, trying to show my family. Some of them did it, some of them didn't. So actually, my aunt just purchased a house here in Georgia like two months ago doing that. But oh. like, had well, she went to the VA process, but able to help her boost some credit and different things like that. But zero percent down, and then. Just to put the ball on my story, I was able to do all that, and I was able to purchase my first home about four years ago. So it was about <laughs> that's how long I've known you. Yeah, okay. And yeah, I only yeah. put in four hundred sixteen dollars. I was able to buy my first time house. Wow, yeah. this is making so much sense because the whole conversation in that ride is all finance based, and it just puts me in the mindset of the young people that we're working with and how you could instill all that information in them. And some stories worked out well, and we have a story that just kind of, it, it makes me, I'm in this moment like this, like, dang, he missed out. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm experiencing right now. Yeah, that's another story for another day as well. But, um, so you have this information. You uh, you are clearly leading by example. Mm-hmm. You're also having results in other areas, in other people's lives. So what are you doing with that information now? Um Still, still volunteering it. I uh, want to put together more structure with this. So I uh, came up with this branch out. Uh, I was reading an article about the wealth gap between black, brown, white, and Hispanic families in Boston. It's called The Color of Money. Uh, and in that article, they spoke that the net uh, worth of a black family in Boston was only $8. Uh, yes. Net worth? Net worth was $8. Okay. On average for uh, a black family. And I just learned, the ca- well, not that I just learned, but we just had a conversation about the calculation of a net worth. So if, for anyone who's listening and don't know how to calculate your net worth, your assets, so the things that you own minus the things that you owe, meaning after all that is calculated, you got $8 to your name. Yes. So tell me more. Right. And then for the similar for white families, it was 247000 Eight dollars to two hundred. I, I just was hoping you were going to say dollars. No. Two hundred and forty-seven thousand to eight dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to be intentional about doing something like that. So I just started working with my family, and then also being strategic about it. You know, when I go to visit and I, you know, have these conversations with them, that becomes a business expense. So I was given a presentation. I put out the concept presentation for them. I started working with them, building up their budgets. Uh, had them pay me like. It's very small amount, uh, just to, of course, you have to turn a profit mm-hmm. within three years for it to not be listed as a hobby. 
Um, but I created a, an entity called 247K. And K represents styles. And so literally be intentional, like this is the gap between wealth and I'm gonna use this entity to really teach my family in a more structured place. Before I was doing it from just from the heart and without a lot of structure behind it, uh, and kind of and ad hoc instances. But when I put the structure behind it and made them have kind of have even if it's very small skin in the game, I was able to see how they were taking things more seriously, and also was able to show them like here's how you do things and here's how you help your family and structure it in a way that you don't hinder yourself. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times as the helper. You go out your way to help someone and then you end up hurting yourself in the process. So it's very important to protect the source <laughs> while also giving giving elements of yourself. Absolutely. I, I admire that about you because you 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 know I'm a much more like recklessly giving type person. <laughs> and you gave me so much advice about just like, you know, tailoring that. And so I appreciate that. And uh, you you have this, you have really a triple threat. You have this financial acumen, you have this awareness of the system, and you have this servant heart. So mm-hmm. you'll always be financially set when it comes to working. You're always you're setting yourself up for entrepreneurship. So we're getting into that lane of, of work and play, which I like to call it, because you're not mm-hmm. doing something. You're ba- you're basically able to run your business and talk to your family. Come on, that it doesn't get more work and play yeah. than that. And then you have this servant leadership, which I know is going to always be a part of this philanthropy, this this uh, community engagement is always going to be a part of what you do. But I'm just curious, as a person, what is your philosophy on money? Because some people have different relationships with money. How has yours evolved? Money can't make you happy. So I learned that from my first job. Literally everyone who was in that building and investment banking was a millionaire besides me at the time. Mm-hmm. Even the janitor, because he owned all of the contracts for like a couple of buildings. So the Thompson Road is building, like I'll talk to him when I'm in there late at night, he's in there coming and just kind of work his shift. And he's like, I'm, I'm rich, but like, I still want to work. So but most of the people in there, like third, fourth, fifth marriage, it's not judging them, but like we have that type of impersonal uh, instability as well as personal instability because of the different things. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Then going to Delta, working on the ramp, I saw how much happier those people were and the, the flexibility with them. So I look at money as it's merely a tool and it's a means. It is never and will never be an end. Mm. I just need to pause and take a break, breath on that. Have you ever, has that changed over years? Did you find yourself more invested in money earlier in your life than you are now? I used to think that that the the means was the end. So before I'm thinking, yo, if I make X amount of dollars and I'm doing this, this is what's gonna make me happy. So when I was chasing those dreams, I was just like, I get there and then it's like, okay, now what? So when you really think about it, like of course my philosophy on money changed because my philosophy of life changed. Mm. As as we can tell. So now you have gone through two different major career transitions and you've been able to like season up your passion for helping people and then your knowledge for like a finance and the way the system works. So where do you see some of your challenges are now? Yeah, so I actually had one more transition. So with the pandemic, mm-hmm. of course, travel industry was, was pretty much hammered during that. And my airline shut down. Uh, so they were like, hey, we're giving you 60 days notice. We're mm-hmm. going to be shutting down. So 
I had to transition. And similar to that, uh, I was offered an opportunity to go work at Amazon. So now I'm working at in a better position. Again, it's funny how these things work out where I'm basically forced into a situation and I'm forced to grow. And then a network from people reaching out, you know, actually pulled me and my manager and we had a connection from somebody who worked at United who transitioned over to Amazon Mm -hmm. prior to uh, our segment of the the airline closing down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the piece there. So in terms of new challenges is how do I find ways to impact in this current role that I'm in? Uh, so we have a similar type of role where you have people moving from operations into finance. It's called the Trailblazer Program. Uh, so I've been involved with that. We have a, a, a person who does like our labor planning underneath us. Actually, coincidentally, guy happens to be from Boston as well. <laughs> it's funny how these things work out, right? No, it's not funny. It's all supposed to happen like this. Exactly. So... I'm in a role where I help the mentor and transition him into those different things and helping him get caught up. And then I'm getting pulled into more like the diversity and recruiting elements there. Uh, so I'm able to kind of, in this new role, which is, uh, you know, shout out to Uncle Jeff, definitely getting compensated very well, uh, but also being able to grow and expand in a different arena with one of the, the number one companies in the world. Uh, and being able to, to have influence there and be my authentic self as well. So, the piece that I'm learning now is not having a learning how to play the game from more of a, a player coach perspective mm-hmm. from actually just having to play the game as a player. So being more removed and, and moving into more of an ownership space. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the um, games I wanted to learn uh, when I left corporate was chess. Mm-hmm. And you just said playing the game, not from a player perspective, from a, but from a player coach perspective. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, so a lot of times when you're on the floor, and I don't know if you play sports or not. No, but I know some, re- some references. Throw right. them at me. So I'll try, I'll try <laughs> to be generic as possible. So no, give it to me. When you're on the court and playing basketball, you only really can see uh, what's in front of you. You can't see what's behind you. You can only see what your peripheral allows you to see. So you're only limited to the vision of what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. When you're removed from that and you're sitting on a bench, you might you can go back into the game and make those adjustments. But when you're you're in coach mode, you can see everything that's happening. You also can see the surrounding areas, like you know you hear the noise of the crowd. You pay attention to the ref movements. You're seeing what they're looking at. You're also seeing what the other coach is doing to mm-hmm. make adjustments for his team. You're also seeing how the other team is moving because you're not just focused on your core responsibility as a player. And your assignment while you're on the court. And then when you transition back onto the court, you know, okay, this is what I have to do to knock this out. And these are the positions that I have to put these other people in. And this is how I lead them to do it. Mm-hmm. So when you remove yourself from the actual kind of on-court side and go to, you know, the bench to oversee things, you start to see the small picture, the day-to-day tasks, and the long view, the long picture and what you need to do and the overarching processes that need to be completed and how the small steps kind of lay into it from a career perspective and a personal perspective. Mm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the challenge that you're at, you're in right now is learning. So now that you're in this coach's perspective, you have a different vantage point mm-hmm. and then learning how to put the people in the right position to be able to, and, and tell me if I'm, tell me if I'm in the right direction, but be able to, um, one, um, matriculate through this like trailblazers type program 
but also helping the people around who are leading that that program. And then from a coach's perspective, look at yourself and then say, okay, so what do I need to do to get the most out of this position? Exactly. So it goes from, hey, I just got to do what's best for me and, you know, do everything I need to do. And you can watch me do this. And you could come along that way, or I'll help you because, you know, this is part of my job to do this, or this is something that I'm going to gain for them versus, okay, let me see what that person needs. And I'm responsible for developing that person. I got to make that person the best player so all I can remove all the different barriers that they have in their career or different barriers that they have in their growth and development to put them in the best position. Mm. Well, you know, and almost sometimes putting that ahead of myself. So it's that transition from, you know, I think that's the true nature of a boss and as a true nature of an entrepreneur. It's taking the needs and wants of everybody else, putting that ahead of what you have as your personal agenda and doing what's overall best versus what's best for you. And I think that's the transition that I'm having right now. Mm, I can't wait to see how this one evolves. Man, so what what your life has come to, and, and like I said, none of this is funny because it's the people from Boston, the the Trailblazer program, where it literally gets to get give you a chance to put everything that you've learned from leaving the investment banking uh, environment to going into baggage handling, and then to work your way up, and then you're working with people who are also already in corporate. So the Trailblazer program is not necessarily people in Crim or people at Covenant House. These are people who have the know how. You just have to coach them a little bit to get to where they want to go. Um, so your story really combinates to a place where this challenge is set up specifically for you. So what would you say are like your, you know, top three goals? What are some things that you want to accomplish in this role? Uh, one, I want to be able to hire a lot more people who look like me. Uh, want to be able to make sure that those people reach their goals that they set for themselves. And three, I really want to make sure that I represent where I come from and the people who look like me in the best position. So that way that door remains open. And not only that it remains open, that they're rushing through the polling more applicants. Yeah. In a nutshell, bringing the entire community yeah, up. Yeah, chomp with the team on the that. <laughs> <laughs> the whole community. I love it. And um, when it comes, so you've touched on, well, you have a great balance between this corporate spirit and this entrepreneurial spirit. And you've also touched on the fact that you know, you have this coaching and teammate advantage from where you sit. So what do you think would be, how do you think it would be helpful for, to have um, another coach coach you? What does that look like? I think iron always sharpens on. Um, so it's always important. So I have mentors, even in my role, and other things like they develop organically. So like I said, you put yourself in a position where you become useful to somebody. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to notice that. And eventually the right person is going to come along and say, hey, let me nurture that. I see where you're going, but here's a bigger picture. Yeah. And they're going to help develop that. So I think it's important. Like you are actually at points in my time, my life cycle here. I've been a very good mentor and a coach. As the people don't know, like Ari is really uh, one of those people who is very giving of herself and will help you through whatever process you need. So I have problems with public speaking and you actually help as the leader of our Toastmasters club. Uh, help me go through the different uh, mechanisms to, to improve my speech and the way that I converse with people. I received that. And I think I think what I, it took me a minute to receive that, if you can tell. <laughs> but I totally, I appreciate you saying that because 
I I could have never, not not never, but your life is not my life. But if I if I had any type of impact on you communicating your story, that's dope. Because anyone who there's so many people who can benefit from the life you've lived, and you being able to say what it, what it is that you have to say confidently, eloquently, and then bring that influence so that someone can understand what they need to do just off of your word. That's powerful. So then where do you find coaching and mentorship in other areas? I think it's all around you. Uh, I think a lot of times we discredit the coaching that's already there because we're looking for it in a different package. Mm-hmm. So my parents were very great coaches for me. Uh, my aunts, my uncles, they have so much of a wealth of life experience mm-hmm. that a lot of people should tap into. But then also, like, again, I have very good friends. So you being one of those people, like, I'm learning from you. Like, even before we kind of sat down for the conversation, I'm like, hey, what you doing with that mic? How does this work? What program are you looking forward to? Like, so maybe one day I might want to learn how to do a podcast and, and be on the couch and I can interview you one day. But it's all it's all around you. And I think that people uh, discredit that because they're so used to trying to look for it in a certain package where a lot of these things are always right in front of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure there are people around you at Amazon and in other areas of your like technical career that can help you along the way. So and if you so if you aren't already, um, I would say like continue to tap into that because there's a coach right now looking at you and saying, look, let me let me tap into his, you know, his knowledge because he knows both the finance and he knows the, the servant leadership and he knows that operations piece, which like. A lot of people, that's, I think that's a lived type practical skill that mm. I don't necessarily know if you can get that in a book. You can't, but you can get it from the things that you learn from the books. So whatever piece you don't have, you can learn. You just have to go and apply what you already have to it. So a lot of us come from the operational side. We may not view it as that, but if you're surviving coming up in the inner city and those different things, you're an operator. You had to learn how to strategically move around the mechanisms and traps to get to where you needed to be. You're an operator in the purest sense of the word. And you learned how to strategically move through these things without getting in trouble, without making any of these serious mistakes that would hinder you from being able to apply for these opportunities. You've made it there. So when you're looking at how to navigate the corporate world, you may think that you don't know how to, but you've already done it. You've just done it in a different corporate environment. So I think, again, like we look at coming from the inner city as a disadvantage. No, it's a supreme advantage because you know how to handle adversity. You know how to communicate with those people in the way that they would like to communicate so you can get what you want and also kind of make sure you navigate safely through it. And then the last piece is that you know how to uh, interact with people in a way that uh, you're able to get your resources in a place where resources are scarce. Man. I don't know another way to close this out any better, but I'm going to ask (laughs) for sure. I'm going to ask that you give us something because what I, what I, I love about the story that not the story, but the analogy that you just gave us is a way for us to see that we are, we can all bring that life experience to the role that we have. And then we can use that practical information to our advantage so that we can be an, an expert at whatever it is that we've lived and bring that power in whatever way that it looks like. It doesn't matter if you are the lowest person on the totem pole or the highest person. You're, the way you look at the world is completely different and nobody else can take that from you. 
course. But then I say it any better myself. <laughs> you said all I did was <laughs> I was paraphrasing. So we are both Toastmasters. Um, and in this, I am what's coming up right now, I wanna do this. And I think I, I just think it'll be dope. You know table topics. Of course. <laughs> so I'm thinking, um, this this I did it one other time before, but I think it'll be dope coming from you. I want to do this Put thing. Me like, on the spot look, 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 <laughs> hey, you coming with a dime, so I just want to make sure that the people go away with some real good value. So I got three words in my mind. I'm just gonna throw them out there, and then you can tie them up in whatever way in a story, in a you know factual, fictional. You know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have a moment to think about it, and then I'm gonna just let you roll. You'll see the you'll say the last word for whoever is out there. In their life, whether they are at the beginning and they've gone into their first role, like they're at the bottom of the totem pole, or if they're ready to transition, they're at the top and they're like, look, I need to figure out, you know, what's the better fit for you, for me. Um, the three words are going to be. <laughs> should I write these down? <laughs> hey, I, I said we should bring a notebook. Uh, no, I think you'd be fine. But hard skills, soft skills. Money and uh, vehicles. Okay. I got you. I got you. I don't need to beat that much. Okay. So, a lot of times we try to progress in our lives and we look at status symbols as the end. And really, that's not the end. The end is the impact that you have on others. So it doesn't matter what car you drive, what vehicle you own, or how much money you make. At the end of the day, it's all about what you do to impact people. And the biggest way to impact people is not focusing on what type of career that you'll get in, but developing your soft skills and your your technical skills in whatever place that you're in now, and keep using that to leverage to get you to eventually where you want to be, and that's happiness. There you go. Thank you, thank you so much for joining me on this couch. And um, making work and play really feel like it just solidifies every time um, I'm able to do this. And your story is so impactful. And I know that there's someone out here who is listening to your journey in a, in a position where they can leverage something that you've actually shared and level up in their life. So Appreciate you having me. I, I couldn't. It was all my pleasure. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much. And y'all, thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. I will catch you guys on the flip side. Have a great day. Peace out. Thank you.